are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. By way of review, if you've missed the last week or the last couple of weeks, um, we have been in First Peter, obviously, and we have established at this point, to this point of our sermon series, our primary identity in this world is believers, according to Peter, and that's the identity of elect exiles. You know, chosen by God, yet strangers in this world. Elect exiles. And a key identity marker for us as elect, as elect exiles, we looked at last week, is worship. It's praise. So we talked about, if you remember, verse 3 here in chapter 1 of 1 Peter frames up verses 3 through 12. You know, blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. That carries with it the under the foundation for the next eight verses. And then Peter lists all the ways in verses 4 through 12 of why we should bless the Lord. And last week we talked about two. We talked about first, you know, according to God's great mercy, we have been born again. We've been made new. We've been born again to a living hope. We've been born again to an inheritance that will never fade through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then second, we talked about that we worship... God, for he has the power to save us. Not only is he rich in mercy, not only is he great in mercy, but he's also great in power. He has the power to follow through on his merciful desires to save us. And he saves us and he keeps us and he guards us until the final time when Christ is revealed. And the Christian life is a life of living intention between two realities. The letter of 1 Peter is seeking to identify these various points of tension that we live within and doesn't really tell us how to resolve the tension, but helps us understand how to live in the midst of the tension. So, for example, elect exiles. It's living within tension. Living within space, tension. Part of the world, yet chosen out of the world. Last week, the tension of, of future fulfilled hope and present living by faith in a fallen world. And this week, Peter presents another tension, rejoicing in the midst of suffering and trial. I mean, how do we balance lives filled with grief and yet filled with joy? Now, how do we live within the reality that in this world we will have trouble? while at the same time believing in faith that Christ has overcome the world. You know, being born again fills us with great joy, for we've been born to a living hope, an everlasting inheritance. But it's, is it possible to maintain the joy and the hope and the faith in the midst of great trial and tribulation and heartache? And Peter would have you believe, and I would have you believe this morning that yes, it is possible that praise, worship is possible in times of triumph and in times of trouble. As possible in times of triumph, times of joy, and in times of trouble, times of suffering. And Peter tells us how. But I want to pray once more before we begin uh, for the Holy Spirit just to help us believe these things. Um, so let's pray together. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you 
Your grace is sufficient for today. That everything we need for today is found in Christ. I thank You, Lord, that whatever trouble we find ourselves in today, that Your grace is sufficient for today. That You will see us through this day because You cling to us and You hold us in Your hand and You get us through whatever trials we have in life. So by Your Spirit, O God, convince us that these things are true. And then help us by Your grace to walk in the truth. We love You, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, in the world of, of uh, persuasion, um, there are really three ancient qualities or techniques that the speaker seeks to possess in order to get you to buy a product or be won over to an argument or a side. And those three things are, one, ethos, so the speaker's credibility. You know, does he or she, whoever is presenting whatever they're presenting to you, do they have the credibility, the character that backs up what they're talking about? Are they believable? Number two, pathos. Do you possess the emotion or feeling that backs up what you're saying? Do you actually believe what you're saying and have the emotional capacity to show that belief? And the three, logos. Are there solid reasons or logic behind why I should buy your product or believe what you're telling me? Is it clear? Is there a rationale behind it? Does it make sense? You know, even uh, taking preaching classes at Beeson, these three components were sought to be present even in preaching. You know, when I'm unpacking for you a text of the Scriptures, I pray that I have the credibility and the character to back up what I'm saying, ethos. I hope that I'm passionate about what I'm saying, not contrived, but truly you can tell that I believe what I'm saying, that the passion, the emotion accompanies that, pathos. But I also believe that my, I hope my sermons are reasoned well. You know, that they're clear. That I'm drawing a line between point A and point Z, which that would be a long sermon. But point A and whatever, the logos. You know, I hope that I have all three of those components. And many times that first component, ethos, credibility, character, it's most established when the speaker has experienced that which he or she is discussing, right? You want to know the person's used the product they're trying to get you to buy. You want to know they've experienced the life experiences they're talking about, right? It's not necessary, but it helps, right? It helps undergird the ethos, the character, the credibility of that person. They want to know that you've experienced what you're talking about, that you've walked through that road before. You know, a leader in the armed forces can lecture you all day about the realities of war. But they have greater credibility, greater ethos when they've actually lived through the realities of war. You know, what they're saying may be true. What they're lecturing you on may be true. But it adds to their reliability and they can tell you from firsthand experience what it's like to be in war, to be in combat. And there's nothing more universal to the lived experience of humanity than suffering. I mean, Christine and I were on vacation this last week, and it was great. It was awesome. I feel very rested. Uh, slept a lot. That's what I needed. The bar for vacations is so low, all right, when you have kids. It's like, give me a place to sleep. Give me a book to read. I'm good to go, all right? That's all I need. Um, but it was great. But regardless of who I met on that vacation, regardless of where they were from, what nationality, 
they were, what ethnic background, socioeconomic background they may have possessed, regardless of all those things, I can guarantee you that we would have two things in common. One, we're human beings, and two, we felt pain, that we've suffered. Whether that be emotional, psychological, physical, granted some people experience those things more than others, but everyone has walked through suffering of some kind in this world. So merely by being human and living in a fallen world, every person in this room has ethos, has credibility when it comes to discussing the realities of suffering, of pain. Because all of us have suffered, some more than others. And the two universal questions people ask themselves in the midst of suffering is one, why? Why is this happening to me? They're seeking a reason for their suffering. And two, how long? How long will this suffering last? They're seeking an end to their suffering. And Peter seeks to answer both of those questions in verses 6 through 9 of 1 Peter. And let's remember two things, two things that are key here, as we've talked about already, as we enter into this text on trials, on pain. First, let's remember who Peter's writing to. He is writing to believers. He's writing to Christians. He's addressing the whys and the how longs for believers, for Christians, not non-Christians. The hope and promises he gives to comfort here in this text are meant for those who have been born again to a living hope. And second, let's remember that this is suffering in the midst of obedience. This is not suffering as a result of sin. Now, the trials Peter's discussing here are not self-induced effects of poor, sinful decisions. But these are things allowed to come upon us in the sovereignty of God without any direct, necessarily direct one-to-one cause and effect implications here. These are just trials of living in a world that's broken, that has fallen, and seeking to be obedient in that world. So let's get into the text. Peter, verse 6, he begins to shift here from focusing on the certainty of coming salvation and glory to the dark, depressing realities of the present. But as we're going to see, he doesn't completely neglect future salvation, but the coming reality of future full deliverance is actually what sustains us through trials in the present. So let me read for us again verses 6 and 7. Read for us again verses 6 and 7. Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter from the outset here, is seeking to establish the fact that trials are to be expected in the Christian life. That trials are to be expected in the Christian life. That to be a Christian and expect to be spared from trials is naive at best and a false gospel at worst. Let me define for you uh, exactly what I'm talking about when I use the word trial. That might be helpful for us. Trials are tests to see if something can stand up to strain. And trials are universal. They're not just relegated to Christianity. I mean, anything you use in your everyday life has probably been subjected to some kind of trial. 
When you think about drugs or medical procedures that you embark upon or take or have to go under the knife or whatever the case may be, there's a great chance, 100% really, that those drugs, that medicine, that innovation has been subjected to some kind of testing trial to see if it withstands the strain. I think about our fuel when we put it in our gas tanks, right? Before it gets to the gas station, it has to meet certain regulations. So it goes through a trial, goes through a test to see if it meets those regulations. I mean, cases, legally, like think about courtroom cases. Cases are brought to trial to see which side of the arguments and evidence stands up to the scrutiny and tests of the facts, right? Trials are universal and common in our everyday lives. And trials for Christians are those events in our lives allowed by God that are used to test our faith, our belief in the claims and promises of God. Just as trials on our products in this world are used to make this product better and work out the kinks, so to speak, of that product, so trials in our Christian lives are used to strengthen our faith and work out any rough spots that may appear to purify our faith, which we'll talk about in a second. Now, this is different. Trials are different than temptations. All right? Trials and temptations are two different things. Temptations come from Satan and are intended to destroy your faith, where trials are allowed and ordained by God to strengthen your faith. James 1 tells us that God never tempts anyone with evil, nor can he be tempted by anything or anyone. But temptation comes from the evil one. And the purpose of it is to destroy your faith, to make shipwreck of your faith. He wants to, to harm you, to have you release the promises of the Lord, not cling to the promises of the Lord. But what does Peter say here about the nature of trials? So if, if those are what trials are, what does Peter say in these verses about the nature of trials? So look at verse 6 again. He says, in this, so the this, the this is verse 5. So looking back to verse 5, talking about the coming salvation when Christ is revealed, verse 5. So in this coming salvation, Peter writes, you rejoice. That's easy, right? <laughs> you think about the coming salvation of Christ, it's not hard to rejoice, right? You see him coming as deliverer. We rejoice in the coming salvation of Christ. But Peter goes on, he says, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So the first thing we see about trials in the Christian life is that trials are temporary. Trials are temporary. Though now for a little while. It's not forever. It's temporary. For a believer, as we sit under the weight of trials and suffering in this life, and we ask ourselves the questions of how long, Peter gives an answer. He says, not long. Not long. Not forever. He doesn't get into the specifics of each and every trial that would be impossible for him to do. I can't get into the specifics of each and every trial you're walking through right now. But Peter can say with confidence to the Christian, it will not be like this forever. Not be like this forever. And for those of us who've walked through times of suffering in the moment, it feels like forever. Does it not? It feels like it's taking a lot longer than it should. I mean, this is a common refrain in the Psalms, particularly the Psalms of Lament. Psalm 6, 13, 35, 74, 79. I could go on and on. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long? 
even the psalmist, knowing the realities of who God was and what the promises he made consisted of, still felt the strain of suffering in this life and asked real, gut-wrenching questions. How long? Even though he knew it was temporary. We must remind ourselves, church, we must remind ourselves that our lives on the spectrum of eternity are a blip. They are here today and gone tomorrow. I mean, our 60, 70, 80, 90 years in this world may feel like a long time, but it is a mist. It is a vapor. That this light momentary affliction we find ourselves in the middle of, to use the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The light momentary affliction preparing us something that is eternal. It's not to say the pain is not real or that your suffering is small or unimportant or trite. But we have to preach the gospel to ourselves and remind ourselves that eternity is coming, that this will not be forever but it's here today and gone tomorrow. C.S. Lewis writes it in his famous essay, The Weight of Glory. He says this. He says, At present we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of mourning, but they don't make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. The leaves of eternity are rustling, church, reminding us that one day we'll be on the other side of that door. So trials are temporary. Second, trials may sometimes be necessary. Trials may sometimes be necessary. It's that phrase in verse 6. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. You know, for the unbeliever, suffering is only a bad hand that was dealt. It's a bad roll of the dice. Pain is arbitrary and meaningless because we live in a dismal reality that is arbitrary and meaningless. But for the believer, for the Christian, suffering and trials always serve a purpose. It's the point of the cross to show us that suffering serves a purpose. And trials and suffering only come your way if God is using them to move forward His purposes for your life, His church, and His glory. The goal of the Christian is to be made more into the image of Christ, to reflect more and more of His character and actions to the world around us. And if our Savior was made perfect through suffering... Hebrews 2.10, how much more should we expect God to use suffering in our lives to mold us more into the image of His Son? That may sound scary. That may sound ominous. But thanks be to God for His promises to us, church. And that's not the point of 1 Peter here. Peter's trying to reiterate to his readers the solid hope and belief even in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, that God is using that for His good purposes for us in this life and in the life to come. Sometimes trials are necessary to accomplish His goals for us, which may be different than our goals for ourselves. 
but his goals for us are always for our good and always for his glory. So trials are temporary. Trials may sometimes be necessary. Third, trials produce real grief. Trials produce real grief. In this you rejoice, verse 6, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You are rejoicing, Peter says, even as you're grieving. Sometimes it's not an either or, it's a both and. And we all know this is true. Do we not? We all know this is true. Uh, My grandmother, Louise Martin, died a few years ago in 2018. Born, raised, lived, and died in Cleveland, Georgia. Uh, Northeast Georgia, foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, She never left. And my memories of her are extremely fond. Um, You know, part of the reason I love the mountains so much is because it's nostalgic for me to think about going and visiting my grandparents in the mountains of North Georgia. Um, When I drive through the mountains, when I smell bacon in the mornings, um, reminds me of her waking up and cooking breakfast for my family when we come into town. When I hear the words, uh, I reckon, or Walmarts, plural, Walmarts, Those things make me think about my grandmother. It's called the Walmarts. That's what it was called. It wasn't Walmart. Um, But I have fond, great memories of of her. Um, But towards the end of her life, my grandmother suffered from pretty crippling dementia. Uh, She began forgetting minor details at first, um, but those turned into forgetting family members. Even my grandfather, even though they'd been married 60 plus years, just could not remember who he was. And it truly grieved our hearts just to watch that slow progression as it takes place. Many of you have been there, maybe with your family members, parents. When she passed away, um, I was fortunate enough to be there uh, with my mom and my grandfather and my uncle and my aunt. And grief was real. Grief was raw. We knew this was coming. Didn't make it any less hard. There was no hiding behind trite truisms or sayings. I mean, it was real, tear-filled, hard grief. But at the same time, as we're experiencing all of those things that are real and heartfelt and deep, it's also rejoicing that as my grandmother left this world with a broken mind, that it was then fully and finally restored as she gazed at Christ. That the suffering she endured as she slowly began to forget those she loved in this life, that suffering was over. And she was in a place where the only forgetting she would ever experience is forgetting the effects of sin on her life for all of eternity. Rejoicing, tension of rejoicing and grieving. We're living in that. We're living in that in that moment. True grief on the one hand and true rejoicing on the other. I mean, even here as a church, even here as a church, you all, before I got here, have been through so much shared grief. So much. God calls Stephen and Matt away to Boston in 2018. That's rejoicing mixed with grief, right? COVID hits in 2020, and that same year you lose your space on Fifth Avenue. There's a lot of loss. You know, Andy and Melanie are called to Kansas in 2021. The Campbells moved to Mississippi later that year. 
You know, many of our church family have moved to other cities and states following the leading of the Lord in their lives for their families. I mean, there's shared grief all over this body, all over, that still feels real raw. And there may be some rejoicing in that grief, knowing that all these families have followed the Lord's leading. Praise the Lord that they're obedient to that. But at the same time, the loss is real. The grief is real. Many of those losses have been great trials for this church. Great trials. Intended by God to strengthen your faith. To strengthen our faith. That He will hold us together. That He will keep this thing afloat. Right? But the grief still remains. You know, for some of us, maybe you haven't yet worked through that grief. You know, some of us may just be waiting for the next shoe to drop, for the next person to leave, for the next thing to happen. So instead of feeling the freedom to give our heart fully to the community of faith, we're holding a little back because we don't want to be hurt again. We don't want to grieve again. We don't want to feel loss again. And my word to you is, it's okay. It's okay to grieve. Everyone here is in different places when it comes to the corporate grieving process here. And we as a church, we need to start talking about it. Start working through some of it. Sitting with the loss. Looking at how that has affected us, truly. How it has affected us. Maybe some of you haven't started processing that grief yet, and you need to. But don't let your grief cause you to miss all the reasons the Lord is giving us to rejoice today in this church. He is with us. Your name, Emmanuel Church, our name reminds us every time we speak it that God is with us. That He's with us. That He'll see us through our pain. That He'll bring us to places of great rejoicing for the work He has done and will do. Let us grieve together in trials. Let us grieve together, yes, but let us always remind each other of what the Lord is doing and cause it to rejoice praise to stir up in us towards one another. Fourth, trials refine our faith. Trials refine our faith. Verse 7. So that, purpose clause here, the reason you've been grieved by various trials, Christian, is so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter here compares the testing you experience in this life, the trials you experience in this life, to, to gold being purified. You know, gold is put into the fire, right? And the dross melts away, and they scrape off that impurity so that the gold is more pure. So our faith is sometimes put into the fire so that the impurities, the shortcomings, melt away making it more pure and more refined. But even as Peter compares our faith to gold, the most precious known material at the time he wrote this letter, he says that our faith is more precious than gold. For even gold, the most precious, valuable commodity in the known ancient world, still perishes. Gold still doesn't last Gold belongs to this world and will one day be destroyed. Our faith will not. 
And Peter wants to assure us, church, once again, that our suffering has purpose. That even the worst things we may walk through in this life will be used to strengthen our faith. And he also wants to reassure us that if we find ourselves in the middle of trials, it's not due to a lack of faith. It's not due to failure on your part. Not being punished if you're walking through various trials. He doesn't want us to think that we did anything wrong to bring on the trial or test, but simply that God in His grace desires to ref- us to reflect more of Christ's faith when He was put to the test. Jesus Christ has endured many trials. and come out on the other side, sin-free, spotless, pure. And if the goal of our Christian living is to be made more into the image of Christ, we will be put to the test as well. And we'll come out pure, purer on the other side. I think J.I. Packer says it best in his beautiful book, uh, Knowing God, classic. If you haven't read it, you should read it. Knowing God, J.I. Packer, he says this, Not by shielding us from assault by the world, the flesh, and the devil, nor by protecting us from burdensome and frustrating circumstances, nor yet by shielding us from troubles created by our own temperament and psychology, but rather by exposing us to all these things, so as to overwhelm us with a sense of our own inadequacy and drive us to cling to Him more closely. This is the ultimate reason, from our standpoint, why God fills our lives with troubles, perplexities of one sort and another. It's to ensure that we will learn to hold Him fast. He takes it all away so that we aren't clinging to anything but Christ. And that's the truth. As we seek to hold on to Christ in the midst of our trials in this world, we quickly find that He's actually the one holding us. When we feel like we're at the end of our rope and we are so close to letting go, we realize His arms are so firm around us that there is nothing in this world that can pluck us from His hand. He is faithful to us in our times of trial not to let us slip, for He loves us and He will hold us fast. Sometimes we find believing the promises of God come easy. Some days we find we've got to fight to believe Him. In both cases, the Lord is faithful and will be a refuge for us in times of trouble. Psalm 46.1 Trials are temporary, sometimes necessary. They produce grief. They refine our faith. Fifth, the goal of trials is worship. The goal of trials is worship. As our faith is strengthened and purified by trials, the result is praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When we behold in that final day the face of the one for whom we endured great trouble. When he stoops down to us to wipe away the tears that trouble in this life have produced. What will fill up our hearts on that day and roll off our lips is praise to his name. Christ gets glory when we endure when we walk through the fire of affliction and suffering, when things we have in this world are taken away, when sickness and illness come our way, 
when our husbands and wives make decisions that grieve our hearts, when our children spurn the faith and walk away from the God we've so desperately tried to teach them about and model for them. When all these things happen and we find ourselves at the end of the day still clinging to Christ, still clutching to Him, still believing His promises, pleading with Him to see us through just another day, just another hour, just get us through this hour, when we truly desire to believe in our heart of hearts that what the psalmist says, that though my flesh and my heart may fail, God is the strength in my heart and my portion forever. When we believe that, when there's nothing left for us but Christ, that makes God look beautiful. That makes God look amazing and worth wanting and pursuing in this life. The kind of faith demonstrates to this world that Christ is our treasure. He's our treasure. Nothing else in this life can fulfill us like He can. Where the devil seeks to destroy us through temptations to sin, God seeks to strengthen us through trials to worship. And Peter wraps it up here in verses 8 and 9. We'll wrap it up too. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Trials produce joy as we wait for the coming of Christ. Yes, it is possible to rejoice in the midst of trials. We may never get answers to the specifics of why or how long. Specifics in our lives. Specific trials we may face. But even as the questions swirl, we may be confident in the heart of our God that He will never leave us, forsake us, and He has a purpose in our trial. So this morning, you may, um, you may find yourself in the midst of some trial right now. Some trouble. I mean, if I'm believing the promises of God this morning as you rolled out of bed a lot harder than maybe you'd liked. That it's not necessarily a natural disposition for you to come to His Word right now, to be filled up with the Spirit right now. So I want to end this morning. I want to read some of God's promises over you. And I want you to listen to the Word of the Lord. I don't care if you close your eyes. I don't care if you hold out your hands to receive these promises. Whatever your posture is, I want you to hear the word of the Lord. His word towards you, even in the midst of your trial. And if you're not in a trial right now, hear the word of the Lord because you will be. Hear the word of the Lord. I'm going to read over this, these verses for you. Isaiah 40. 29 to 31. God gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint. Isaiah 43, 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. 
Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, O God. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Matthew 7, 9-11. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Matthew eleven twenty eight 28-30. Jesus says, Come to Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Psalm 145.18, the Lord is near. The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. And then Romans 8 31 and 32. What then shall we say to all these promises, church? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously with him give us all things? These are the promises of God towards you, believer, and they never fail. They never run out. There's not any kind of expiration date. They are yours in Christ Jesus to cling to in the midst of trial, in the midst of tribulation. Father, we thank you. Thank you, Father, for your promises to us. There's nothing we could do to earn your favor, and yet you pour it out on us because of your Son, Jesus. That all of the promises of God find their yes in Him. I don't know what everybody in this room is walking through right now. I don't know what awaits us four hours from now. But you do. And even as we feel the weight of the heaviness and pain and the trouble that we're in or will be in, even as those things come, you are with us in it. The cross of Christ establishes even more of an ethos because you, O oh God, knows what, it, knows what it's like to lose someone you love. The Christ knows what it's like to suffer in this life, to walk through trials in this life, to feel pain and loss and grief. You have walked it, Lord.
so we can believe you even more. Thank you, Lord, for your promises to us. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.